Welcome to the Shades of Hope podcast. This is a frank conversation between two friends who care deeply about the case for racial justice as it's presented in the gospel. In this podcast, we'll cover where racial justice shows up in the Bible, why it's important for pastors to be in conversation, God's urgency for this work, and how the church can start conversations for the work of racial justice. Welcome, everyone. Glad that you could join us for what is our hope to be an edifying conversation for those who are interested in conversations on faith and race. My name is Jeff Krajewski. I'm the pastor at Common Ground Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are a primarily white, historically evangelical church near a college campus and have been a church for about 20 years. I'm the founding pastor. And we have recently, over the last three to five years, I would say, started taking the conversation on race and particularly our faith and how those two subjects intersect. One of the reasons why this conversation has accelerated for us has been the direct relationship that I've had with Pastor Clarence Moore, who is also joining us. We'd have coffee every week or every other week and just talk about life and our faith and how race is impacted by all of those things, and particularly in our city. And so we just thought, you know, we have coffee and conversation and we thought, man, maybe others would appreciate kind of listening in on our conversation talk. So it's my pleasure to also introduce you to my friend, my mentor, and a wonderful man of God here in the city of Indianapolis, Pastor Clarence Moore. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. And yes, I have had the privilege of pastoring the New Era Church here in the great city of Indianapolis now for over 31 years. And we have been in the heat of the battle for all kinds of injustices. And of course, in the last year or so, we have been enveloped so many issues that are affecting my congregation and my community. And it is so refreshing to be able to sit down with my brother who pastors a predominantly white church and hear his angle on how I perceive our problems in our culture today. And so it just blesses my heart to know that there is a white brother who is willing to listen and to really hear the heart of an African-American pastor in these polarized times. And so I am so excited to be here with Pastor Jeff, and we hope that our conversations will be real, raw, but also will be edifying. Yeah, and it has been a blessing, let me just say, to be able to walk this journey with you, the way in which you're so very gracious and careful, but also truthful in the way that you continue to push me to think outside of what my historical 
theological and cultural contexts are. You continue to kind of poke me just in just the right way. <laughs> and so my hope is that that's what is going to happen in this podcast is that some of that poking in, in love toward a better version of what it means to be followers of Jesus in this day and time can happen. So thank you for the way that you do that. And you put your finger on something that I want to just maybe explore a little bit with you and how you've been pastoring your congregation recently. You're talking about the times. And so my guess is that these conversations are happening exponentially more based on the events that have happened over the last 12 to 18 months. These are not new things. That's right. Right. You have been pastoring a congregation through the sorts of racial tension that has existed for much longer than what has become sort of this popular moment to think about it. But you chose, you know, just in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, you chose to do a series that was titled Jesus and Justice. Why did you choose that particular title and what were you trying to get at with your congregation when you preached that series? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's twofold. For one thing, our people were hurting. We had lost Ahmaud Arbery, we had lost Breonna Taylor and the George Floyd incident. And one of the incredible purposes and foundational places of the African-American church in the black community is that we speak to the issues that our people are facing. And so they were looking for some hope, looking for, you know, how do I get through this moment where I'm, how do I, how do I have a healthy anger because I'm angry pastor. And so I had to share with them very transparently that I was also angry and that I would use my anger in a positive way to try to bring some kind of change to the conversation. And so uh, the main reason was to bring a healing bomb into the hearts and minds of those that sit in the New Era Church. The second reason is I wanted to have this conversation because so often I think my white brothers and sisters want to have a conversation, a transactional moment, but they don't want to go deep and where we could begin to look at some transformative steps that we could take in order to bridge this gap, because I just believe that it breaks God's heart that he continues to see this incredible polarization and division between his children, all because of a little thin exterior on everybody's body. You know what I mean? You, mm-hmm. If you take away that, that little skinny, that little thin segment called skin and remove it and we walk around without any skin, you know, we wouldn't know who's black or white. And but yet we've allowed the enemy to separate us. So for twofold, I wanted to I really want to challenge my white brothers and sisters. I am through going into white churches, preaching a, a wonderful sermon and leaving without saying, no, no, we really have to challenge each other because my grandchildren lives are at stake here. And if you could even just go a little bit farther with that, what do you want white pastors to know right now in terms of their responsibility and calling as shepherds of the sheep? Like, what do you want us to know? Yeah. Um, White pastors and white Christians typically are okay with Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. But when it comes to justice, it's kind of like people going to 
a golden corral where you have all of the various choices of diet you can choose from. And so white Christians, as oftentimes in some segments of the black Christian life, we have a way of choosing, picking and choosing aspects of the gospel we want to chew on, but other aspects we want to not chew on. And so I would Mm -hmm. say to my white brothers who are leading white churches is that you can't have Jesus minus justice. Mm -hmm. You have to have Jesus and justice if you're going to be and act like Jesus. He came to those that were disinherited. And I say to my black Christians and brothers and sisters that you can't have justice and not have Jesus. Come on. So I, I'm challenging both communities in this arena that you've got to walk to turn this thing around. Please, God, is to have Jesus and justice in your theological framings. And I, I really want to talk to you about how some white pastors are thinking right now, Pastor Jeff, theologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just to follow your metaphor, which, you know, we're getting a little close to home talking about the Golden Corral. But when we're using your metaphor, I think we have been trained that parts of the buffet are dangerous and actually not good for us when it comes to understanding the whole of the gospel. That when we talk about justice issues, we're talking about worldly things. We're talking about temporal things that are not the story of God and redeeming the world don't have anything to say to. So we've allowed ourselves to disconnect the justice heart of God, which we see throughout all of the scriptures, not just in Jesus, but clearly in Jesus. We've separated those justice components, and we've actually said, if you get too close to them, you could get sick. In our vernacular, people are going to call you a liberal. They're going to call you a heretic. If you start to get into the actionable ways in which the gospel plays itself out in the world. And so I think we've been comfortable with that primarily because it absolves us from responsibility. Wow. It gives us theological cover to say, well, that's not what we're about. And I read Dr. King's speech regularly, or not his speech, his letter from the jail on a regular basis, because I need that one paragraph that said his issue was with the white moderate. Absolutely. Who had found a way to negotiate the clear mandate of the gospel for the disinherited, as you said. And we've been able to separate that from our responsibility as people who would say we follow Jesus. Wow. And it continues to come back to me that I can be a white moderate because I can choose where to go in the buffet line. I have the the power and the privilege because of the color of my skin to be able to opt in and opt out whenever I choose. Yeah. And so for me, and I'm not speaking for, you know, my brothers and my sisters, but for me, I can no longer take the power and the privilege that I'm afforded and use it only to protect myself. Because theologically, Jesus had all the power and the privilege and he gave it up on our behalf. Yes. And so we have to figure out wherever we have it, we need to also offer it on behalf of those who don't. Absolutely. You know, it was Dr. King that said, and I'm so glad that you're reading his materials and we all are. He made the statement that it is not the words of our enemy. It is the silence of our friends that hurts us. And I think that that is when I speak of the, to some extent, not all 
you know, you have to be careful generalizing. But to some extent, our white brothers and sisters, when it comes to the issue of race and equality and justice, they go to the buffet line and they leave certain dishes that they need to be eating and regurgitating for the health of the body of Christ. You know, I often wonder what would happen during the Easter season if all of a sudden the black jelly beans in the jar decided they were better than the red jelly beans. They're all jelly beans. Mm-hmm. What, what makes one jelly bean think that they are better or more intelligent or superior than the other. And I think that's when I look at the ludicrousness of racism and especially through the biblical view of God, I just wonder how is it that men walking, mere men, Gentiles, white and black, Mm. feel like one group is better than the other. And I realize this is an anthropological problem. We talked about the theological aspect, but it's also an anthropological problem. It's a sin problem because we also have black men in Africa killing black men in Africa. We have South Koreans fighting North Koreans. And so we know that there's a higher anthropological sin issue as we talk about race. But here in America, our main issue is our original sin, and that is that of slavery. Uh, And we've been spending, Pastor Jeff, over 400 years trying to fix something that is baked into the DNA of our country. Yep. And it feels like, at least in my very novel reflections on U.S. history, that there tends to be these moments where we take a couple of steps forward, maybe just a half step forward, (laughs) and then immediately there are two or three steps back quickly. And we've experienced that even just in this moment, as we had this past summer, in 2020, we had protests. I mean, just this huge uprising toward paying attention to racial injustice. And then we have January 9th happen. So there's these moments where we take this little half step forward, and then there's this real quick backlash back. And you mean January 6th? January 6th, sorry, 2021, at around uh, 1.30. <laughs> Yeah, January 6th, when the rally to stop the steal was held in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And as a result of that, we had how many thousands of people who attended that rally stormed the Capitol and, you know, people died in that in that rally. It is the response sometimes that quickly tries to negate anything that might look like progress when it comes to racial justice in our country. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's Professor Eddie Glaude who has written a book called To Begin Again. And his whole premise is that, is that every time there is some kind of growth in the African-American community or some element of equality, as what happened in Georgia, you know, it's the first time that Georgia has ever been kind of tilted a certain way by the vote of black people. And then what happens usually, and it's throughout the historicity of America, that we have some kind of a response. And it's always a negative or hateful response. It's always a violent response from a certain segment of the white population to try to negate 
and to shut it down, turn it around. But I want to say this. You mentioned the protests that were going on this summer. I have to give it to uh, our young white brothers and sisters who got in those streets with our young black brothers and sisters, and they join hands. I think that is what tilted things for us, is that the young white college students and young white families got in the street with young black families and young Latinx families and said, hey, this has got to change. And I, so I'm hopeful. I know I sometimes get a little depressed and angry, but I'm hopeful seeing those kinds of images. So I want to follow that thread, but I also want to put a pin in a question that's a follow-up to what you said, which is about the whole idea of your white brothers and sisters' silence in these moments yeah, and how that makes you feel. I'd like to hear you speak more about how you feel when something like George Floyd happens and you look around to see where all of the voices are that are so prominent in other areas that are willing to speak up and tweet and show up, but in these moments say nothing. How does that make you feel? And particularly, how do you see that as complicity in silence? Because I think sometimes people get this disconnect. It's like, I'm not actively doing anything against someone. Therefore, I'm not a part of the problem. Right. Whereas I think you would see that differently. And I'd love to hear how you think about that differently. Well, I think that that is a great question. It saddens me. It saddens me that throughout history, even great white evangelicals and evangelists have fallen victim to this whole posture of silence. Billy Graham, as he was living out of his last few months, one of the regrets that he said that he had was that he didn't speak more to the race issue in the 60s. And he felt like he was just called to preach, you know, what he calls the gospel. And I would say, that, well, that's not the whole gospel. Um, right. And so from great men like that, white pastors and leaders have had the propensity to kind of compartmentalize that aspect of, in my opinion, their duty. And so today, Pastor Jeff, a lot of people will say stuff like this. Well, I don't want to preach a political sermon or I don't want to get involved in politics. And and I always challenge when I hear that is preaching about the Good Samaritan and who is my neighbor and how I should treat my brother. Is that a political sermon or is that a moral justice sermon? And so when I hear or don't hear these pastors who are in these large gatherings who are afraid to go there, I really try to challenge them one-on-one as I have you over coffee. You know, you've got to stand before the Lord one day and, uh, and you have to give an account of how you handled your ministry and your homiletical duties and preach the whole gospel, my brother, my sister, preach the whole gospel.
I think sometimes we spend, as white pastors, a lot more time worrying about the people that we stand before on Sunday mornings and what they're going to think and what they're going to do versus the one who has called us and given us a, a position to speak. And I do think there is a big fear, especially in white evangelicalism. I don't think we want to know the full extent of where our congregation sits in regards to some of these conversations. And I think it's easier for just not to say anything versus say something that would then create the waves that we will have to then deal with. And it just becomes very difficult. I just love the way that you say that. We're going to stand before the one who called us, who judges each man's work impartially and each person's work impartially. And I think sometimes we worry more about the people that are sitting in the pews and how they're judging us. Yeah, it's a tough place for all of us to be, and especially when you're trying to understand how we got to where we are right now. A lot of pastors are just wondering, how do we get here? And to some extent, I think white Christians don't feel like they helped get us here. I think that they don't see the complicity of being silent or of turning their heads in some respects. I heard a statement, I think it was in the reading that we're reading, Pastor Jeff, called The Color of Compromise. And Jamar Tisby made the statement that when the four little girls died in the Ninth Street Baptist Church there, I think it was Birmingham, in 1963, he made the statement that it was if all white people set that bomb. And that's a strong statement to make. And I'll give us a present-day analogy. We blame a lot of things on Donald Trump. But I think Trump and his Trumpism is a regurgitation of a system that is, that is sick when it comes to race. And so he became the personification of a problem that has been festering. Dr. King called it a ball. Mm-hmm a ball that's festering, and until it's broken open and the air of truth begins to bring healing, that infection is going to still be present. And I think that what broke the ball was the presidency of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And that began to break open some things that we all thought was dormant or was doing better. And And so how do we respond? And Pastor Jeff, how are you going to be talking to uh, your peers as it relates to what you are learning in our conversations? That's a great question. Pastor Moore, some of us as white pastors who want to be advocates struggle with how to respond when we see injustice happen. And I just have a quick story that's going to illustrate how we're in process, even as a church leadership, in being able to respond accurately and timely and responsibly when events like January 6th happen. So the Black tradition is very responsive to what's happening in the world. So we have to exercise a muscle that is not developed, which is... What's going on, you know, the newspaper, the Bible, the congregation, like what's our response to things? And then how do we decide what we respond to? And just a little anecdotal story. When the January 6th insurrection happened, 
we knew intuitively as a leadership team, our elders and our staff, that we should do something. And so our immediate response, and I think this is a typical white evangelical response, was to host a prayer gathering. And so we gathered whoever wanted to show up on Zoom, and we had a prayer time. And we left room for people to, you know, process, to talk, to ask questions. And we had some African-American women who are part of our congregation say, hey, what are we going to do? And that challenge to us, and we would have thought initially that we just did it. We, we pray. <laughs> right. Right. And so we did our thing. We're, now we can move on. And so it took us another week before we were able to put out a public statement that denounced that expression of Christianity as white nationalism and not consistent with the way that we read the scriptures and the way that we as a church are following Jesus. And so we are very strong in that. But the distance between the event and our actual response was. 10 days. I feel like we are moving toward becoming advocates when that space in time between when something happens that we know is wrong and knowing what our response is becomes more of a second nature versus something that has to be really kind of thought through and figured out. And, you know, we did the cost benefit analysis and we did all of those things <laughs> yeah. before we put it out. And I, I feel like we're moving in the direction where we would be able to pray and speak versus pray and then speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great point. I hope that in one of our future podcasts that we could delve into some ways, some empirical steps that we could lay out as churches and church leaders try to be proactive instead of reactive when it comes to, you know, a lot of our white brothers are saying, well, okay, I hear the issue, I hear, but, but can you give me some tools? Yep. <laughs> and like you said, I love the way you said it. You know, we don't really have that muscle. So how do I build that muscle? And so I'm hoping that in some later podcasts, we can begin to help our white brothers uh, understand that muscle because black pastors use that muscle every, every Sunday. And I'll be excited to share from my perspective some of those things that we'd like to see happen proactively and not just reactively, and consistently. Yes. Pastor Jeff, I do have an ecclesiological question. You know, we talk about the theological, the anthropological, but I do think we have an ecclesiological problem in that I'm not sure the church, and especially the white church, has owned the history of their part in propagating slavery, and racism. You know, in the material we're reading, White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, to our listeners, I recommend that's another great read. He talks about how not just in the white evangelical church, but also in the mainline Protestant churches, how the Catholics, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and how all of them in the early days of, of slavery were a big part of propagating up that system. And so from your perspective, how do we begin to educate the ecclesia, the church, around the historicity of this problem? Because so often we think a racist is a person that used the N-word, but we don't realize that a racist system has still been propagated. And how does the church 
feel called? How, how should we educate the church to feel called to help dismantle what they help build? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a big question. And I think we have to be honest about our history. And we have to be honest about what we have chosen not to tell in our history. I think we need to be honest about what we have chosen to retell in our history. Yeah. And I think we need to be honest about even just how that history affects our current realities. So this is anecdotal. This is just my little slice of the creation that I've been given the privilege of pastoring at the corner of 46th and Illinois Street. But I was in that building for 15 years as a pastor before I knew what happened in that building and on that property. Wow. You know, so back in the 1800s, we found out that and uh, the Dr. Reverend Samuel Murray, who was the pastor there before me, an African-American gentleman who pastored an African-American congregation in that building right before we showed up, <laughs> told me the history of the building. I preached there before you got there, believe it or not, earlier in my I ministry. I knew it felt sanctified. Yes. When I oh, I don't know about that. But yeah, I, I remember Pastor Mary. But go ahead. So I always feel like every time I get done, that something better has always happened here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We have the privilege as white Americans at telling the story that we want to hear. Yeah. And so when we're not honest about listening to the real story of America, then we have nothing to reckon with because we tell it in such a way that allows us to experience what we're experiencing without guilt. Wow. And I think particularly as Christians, we have an obligation to our story. Because we're story people, right? We've been grafted into a story that makes sense of the space that we occupy. So we have the privilege of interrogating the space that we occupy. So for us as a church, we know that in the mid-1800s, the farmland that our church sits on was a stop on the Underground Railroad for slaves escaping to the north. Wow. And we know that in the building that we currently occupy— in the 50s, that there was an outspoken member of the Klan, and many of the members of the church were Klansmen in the space that we currently occupy. Right. Now, theologically, we know that the battle that we fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against white supremacy. It's not against Klansmen. It is against the powers and principalities of this dark age. And those forces are still at work, whether we choose to acknowledge them or not. And if we don't choose to acknowledge them, then we will be controlled by them. So for me as a pastor, I have a responsibility to know the history of the spaces that we occupy so that we can rightly deal with the results of that history. So as a part of the Butler-Tarkington neighborhood, historically, there has been you know, very overt racism and segregation. The swim club to the north of our neighborhood did not allow blacks in for up until near the 70s. I don't know exactly when the date was, but it was close to the 70s by their policy, you know. And so right. there, there's just the deeds of some of the churches in our neighborhood have written in them that they are not allowed to be sold to people of color, not with that language. And so this is the soil that we occupy, the ground that we occupy. And as Christians, we know that Jesus is someone who comes to set the captives free. And so if we know that captivity was a part of the history that we've inherited, then we have a responsibility to deal with the effects of that captivity in the space that we now occupy. Yes. 
because we inherit the good salvation that comes from our history. We also have to inherit the baggage that causes pain that comes with that. We have to take the whole thing or we can't have any of it. (laughs) There you go. So when we talk about history, I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that there is a black church and a white church for a reason. That's right. So when we talk about our ecclesiology, we we were, I mean, the end of the book uh, that we read out of is every tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven around the throne room praising God for all of eternity. And right now we are in the opposite state of that sort of vision. Yeah. Because we have a white church and a black church and Asian church, Hispanic church. You know, we are separated based, uh, particularly the black church separated by race, I think is an important key in why this is an essential conversation for white pastors to have with their churches. All because they did not want us to sit next to them in church. And so First Baptist, out of necessity, black people had to create Second Baptist. That's a very good point, Pastor Jeff. And I think that we have to own that. But finish your point. No, no, no. I, I want you to tell us the history of why we have the black church and the white church, because I think when we go back there, we have to, as white Christians, own the fact your community did not want that. <laughs> you wanted to we wanted us all to worship together. Absolutely. We were the ones that said you can't be here. I think that when we're talking to our white brothers, having them take a look at the ecclesiology of the church in America is very critical as you and I have these discussions uh, along with all of our theological pinnings that uh, we believe we have support in scripture. You know, you mentioned the letter from Dr. Martin Luther King from the Birmingham jail, and that was his whole argument to his white brothers is that, you know, why is it that you can build your large buildings and have your big, beautiful Sunday schools and have your wonderful hundred members singing choirs. But here I am lingering in the jail cell for one reason. And that is that I'm trying to make sure that all men, regardless of one's color or creed can be treated equal in America. And the church is silent. And so to, a lot of extent, uh, the black church is the response to the rejection from our white brothers and sisters. And we often ask the question, do our white brothers and sisters serve the same God that we serve? And that is how we see it. I mean, we have a Southern Baptist and an American Baptist because they fell out over the whole issue of slavery. And we can go on and on about the ecclesiastical sinfulness that has taken place in the very church of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm glad we're having this discussion. I'm hoping that we can build on these discussions as we go forward, as we deal with the theological, the anthropological, the Christological, and the ecclesiological approaches to this thing called social justice.
Thank you for listening to the Shades of Hope podcast, part of the Center for Congregations podcast network. If you like this episode and think it would be helpful for others, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes. Thank you.